Chapter 2 of Seeing Darkly This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by the Rev. John Sparhawk Jones Chapter 2 Rahab Quote, And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. Unquote. Joshua chapter 2, verse 21. From one point of view, the action reported in this chapter does not command unqualified commendation. Actions differ in quality. Some of them appear absolutely and eternally right in any possible world. Others appear to be not intrinsically excellent, but expedient and lawful by reason of their bearing upon high ends of great value, which set up a justification and apology for them. In one view, the hospitable reception of the Israelitish spies by Rahab and her collusion with them was treason. Yet centuries later, her name stands in the roll call of departed valor and worth as a distinguished example of faith. Evidently, there is a higher law, a supreme canon of moralities, there are transcendent interests by which actions and careers must be ultimately judged. Looking at Rahab's conduct by itself, it cannot be applauded in that crisis of national peril when her country's liberty was at stake. Undoubtedly, she ought to have stood by her people. It was unpatriotic in her to listen to the traitorous suggestions of the Hebrew spies, or to harbor them for an hour. But, as matter of fact, we cannot always detach an action from its connections and environments and subsequent consequences. Actions must sometimes be considered in their larger relations. And a thing may be unconstitutional and irregular, and yet be right. And it is always better to be right than to be regular. Hence it comes to pass that a deed which in its local aspect and isolated is indefensible, sometimes receives applause and a vindication when its affiliations and remote effects are made clear. At any rate, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews hints that Rahab's faith sanctified and condoned her treachery. Nor, observe, was it faith in a coming Messiah, for even the Hebrews just escaped out of Egypt did not profess that. It was not faith in the unity of God or in the Decalogue, for she was a poor, heathenish Canaanite, who had probably no inkling of those sublime truths. Rahab's faith was simply the presentiment, amounting to a profound conviction, that this wonderful, conquering race that had been campaigning through the land would take Jericho, eject the inhabitants, and settle on their premises, that these hordes pouring out of Egypt into Canaan had the unseen and upper powers on their part, and that the omens of victory perched upon their banners. She had heard that this multitudinous and aggressive people was spreading and rising like a freshet in springtime, she may have heard of how they forded the Red Sea and of their victory over Sihon and Og, and she believed that her countrymen could not stand up against the god of these strong Hebrews, that he had greater power and skill than the gods of Canaan. And this simple conviction and clear insight of the situation connected Rahab with the world's immense future and saved her, joined her by a moral sympathy with that race from which Messiah was to spring and in whom the whole earth is to be blessed. It is worth considering, then, that the gospel or divine heavenly message for one age is not by necessity identical or coterminous with that of another. It is a truism to say that there has been a development of doctrine, 
a process in the unfolding of moral and religious truth. No one individual, no one century can compass and appropriate the whole body of knowledge on any subject. New informations and new lights are evermore springing up, or else fresh applications of old and familiar truths are discovered. The human mind looks upon the orb of absolute truth from different distances and at different angles. The gospel delivered to the antediluvians was the impending flood and the instant need of repentance and reformation. The gospel delivered to the idolatrous kings of Judea and Israel by the holy prophets was the coming of captivity and exile. The grim Assyrian was God's besom and scourge, and the need of national regeneration to fend off so great a calamity was declared to be the duty and business of first importance. The gospel delivered to the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai was the earthly Canaan with its milk and honey, corn and wine, and the purpose of God to lead them thither and incorporate them as a body politic. The gospel delivered to them under the Levitical Institute was the necessity of instant practical obedience, even in minutiae and circumstantials, and the virtue of altars and sacrifices to reconcile them to God in some mystical manner. The gospel revealed to Pharaoh in Egypt was that he should liberate the Israelites and allow them peaceably to leave his dominions. The gospel delivered to Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Samuel was that they should arouse the Hebrews to a patriotic zeal for their traditions and should defend their country against heathen invasion because it was the land of promise given by solemn covenant to their forefathers. The gospel preached to the contemporaries of Christ, to the scribes and Pharisees and to that Jewish world, was the impending messianic age, that it had actually arrived and that they might enter upon a career of unexampled prosperity and renown and achieve primacy among the nations by recognizing their opportunity. So, too, in the pagan world, wherever conscience has spoken, Wherever any great moral censor or teacher has arisen to impress upon his time the sovereign ideas of duty, of self-renunciation, of accountability to God, and of the supremacy of the right and the true, there also and in that fact there has been a gospel for that age and for those who heard it. Indeed, moral and religious truth resembles the moon. One age sees it in the shape of a sickle or crescent, another sees it between its quarters, but no generation has ever looked upon it full-orbed and on all sides, or seen more than four-sevenths of its surface. In the same manner, there is a secular evolution in the sphere of religious doctrine. Particular duties, demands, obligations are laid upon an individual, a community, an age, and men are called to live along the rage of their knowledge and light. Now there is no telling what beliefs and prospects may have entered into Rahab's provision at that day. We cannot define or limit religious inspiration. God can enable the human soul to see much and far in ecstatic moods, not given to ordinary judgment and observation. Doors may be opened into the heavens of the future. Hasty glimpses may be vouchsafed. High suggestions may slide into one's soul. A sagacious penetration may be granted. Illimitable ellipses and parabolas may spring across the void of immensity, along which the eye of the seer may travel. Powerful presentiments can take possession of man. This was doubtless the case of the Hebrew prophets. Nor would it be possible to determine how much or how far Rahab saw. Only this, that she had a deeper, truer gospel than her contemporaries. She saw clearly that that civilization was doomed and departing. She saw the handwriting on the wall, and she was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
A grand conception is this of the gradual disclosure of the will of God, like the solar day, he does not burst upon the world unheralded. He reveals himself little by little. He tells one man and one age more than another. Some are so dull that they catch no sound of him, some hear a little more, but none a great deal at any one time. One century interprets God in one way, another varies and widens the interpretation. One literalizes, another allegorizes. One mind lays the main stress upon the attribute of goodness, another upon power, another upon order, beauty, balance, another upon justice and irresponsible sovereignty. In a fragmentary way, in unequal portions, by successive revelations, God makes himself partially known to mankind. Thus the antediluvians had a gospel, and it was their prime business to heed and obey it, which they did not do. The patriarchs had one. The old Egyptians, with their transmigrations and animal worship, the Chaldean astronomers peering into the mystical pomp of the night at the placid, solemn stars, the flash and plunge of meteors, the pale beams and reddening dawn of the morning, all the changeful aspect of the eternal skies, they too had a gospel, living away back in their twilight time. The Persians, too, and all the old people whose glory has perished, each of them, doubtless, had a doctrinal belief in reference to the nature of God, and the duty and destiny of man, and it was their solemn part to revere and respond to these. It was not my gospel, nor yours. It was not Christianity, God manifest in the flesh. But whatever absolute truth their creeds and cults held, whether little or much, it was important that they should learn to obey it. It is not necessary that one man should know as much as another, but it is always necessary that he should do what he knows. It is important and imperative that he should take and express in life and action those of his thoughts which represent things, and which stand for enduring substances and imperishable reals. Hence it is nothing to the prejudice of Rahab's faith even supposing that it did not include several elements that have since come to light and become fundamental to religion. These ideas were not then in the world, in the air, were not available, not to be had on any terms. No one had conceived of them. The soil was too thin and poor, the air too bleak and wintry for such fruits to ripen. One single serious truth was patent to Rahab. Quote, the Hebrews are coming, like the multitudinous waves of the sea. They are leveling every resistance before them, and are now breaking in tumultuous thunders round the rocky walls of Jericho. Unquote. This much was obvious to Rahab. Moreover, she cherished the shrewd surmise, amounting to a profound conviction, that they were the vanguard of the kingdom of light, and that the stars and the equities and the currents of law and the shuttle of destiny were all on their side and working for them. This was the fragment of truth revealed to Rahab, and her merit lay in the fact that she seized and acted upon it. Of course, she did not grasp the whole sequence of events that culminated in the incarnation of the Son of God, only the first link, the first fact, the occupation of Canaan by the chosen people. This was enough to save Rahab. That has served also to immortalize her. She subordinated the ephemeral politics of Jericho to the greater truth that old things must pass away, that there is a providential order, and that from age to age God incarnates his purpose afresh in new institutions and in higher forms. It was not large intellect, nobility of character, purity of life, a deep, 
rich, sensitive nature, any splendid virtue or harmonious combination of mediocre qualities producing a fine effect, that has set her among the immortals. It was not that she foresaw the age of Christ, his discourse, miracles, cross and resurrection, and the subsequent centuries of Christendom. All these things were then sleeping below the horizon. But the fact was simply this, that the world had come to a fork of roads where it must make a sharp turn and file through a different scenery, and Rahab entertained the spies as the heralds of that new era, as those who stood in the forefront of the world's civilization. It was by faith that she did this. It was a clear persuasion that the supreme providence did not intend to perpetuate the outworn type of society that prevailed in Canaan, or to stock the earth with the kind of people who lived in Jericho. It was faith in a higher law, in a nobler nature, in a better morality, in a power that works for righteousness and order. The hearty acceptance of this truth lifted her clean above that crude, coarse age, and has lit up her brow with a gleam of fame, and encircled it with a nimbus. It goes to show that one does not need to know much or to believe many things, but only to be true and loyal to the deposit of truth committed to him. Someone has wittily said that one's creed should not be longer than his decalogue, but this is often unhappily the case. It was not so with Rahab. She acted upon her convictions. Short and frosty as her light was, she followed whither it led. A sure, firm grasp upon one great principle, an intuitive perception of its supreme importance, will carry her name wherever the gospel shall be preached. It is not so vital that one believes a long list of metaphysical articles as that one faithfully honor and daily practice what he does believe, the doctrine or duty clearly revealed to his conscience as obligatory and imperative. At any rate, this is what saved Rahab. Another suggestion of the story respects the imperfection of those human agents whom God employs to do his work. The individual selected to act conspicuous parts, and to stand, as it were, on the hinge of great affairs, have not always been such as we should antecedently expect, either in respect of intellect or of moral character. Our policy would always be to choose from the best men and women, in every sense of the word, the elite, the optimates, the true nobility of worth and mind, these we would anoint and consecrate and make them the commanding figures of history. But this has not been the historic program. God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. Moses in his basket of bulrushes, little Samuel from the mountains of Ephraim, the little Hebrew maid who waited on Naaman's wife, Joseph and David who followed sheep, Rahab the harlot, Peter, James, and John the Galilean fisherman, Matthew the tax-gatherer, these and many more such have been the candidates for promotion. The same is true also in what is called secular history. They who have invented, discovered, achieved in such a way as to impress themselves upon their time and make it memorable, would not always have been designated as the kings and captains of renown by our fastidious tastes and natural expectations. Their cradles were not invariably rocked amid luxurious surroundings, or hung around with bright blue and pale gold. Their parentage was not always gentle, their disposition and inborn qualities were not altogether admirable. So that had you or I been present at the chief epochs and turning points in this life of humanity, and had we known the intimate thoughts and hidden soul of those who were providentially thrown to the surface and invested with power, and to whom it pertained to speak the last word in critical junctures, and to hold the helm through dramatic times of angry discussion and antagonism, 
it is not likely that we should always have approved of their temper, manners, or opinions. We might have said of one, he is a Pharisee, of another, he is an atheist, of another, he is a fast, loose liver, and another, he is a moving man of conceit, a preposterous fop, of another, he is a bear, a cynic, of another, he is a sly fox, a slimy viper. Take any forceful character and masculine genius who has trod this mortal stage with a grand, impressive air. William the Conqueror, Hildebrand, Henry VIII, Martin Luther, Mirabeau, Napoleon, Bismarck, and many another. And had you stood in the presence of such men, and noted their foibles, superstitions, mannerisms, meannesses, watched their conduct and heard their talk, probably you would have marveled that God had chosen such to represent any forward movement or work out any high purpose. It is by no means certain that righteous Noah would have suited us. Abraham, too, might have been found quite disappointing, nor would wily Jacob have filled up our idea and left nothing to desire. Samuel and Elijah would have seemed stern, cruel, and implacable upon occasion. St. Paul, Augustine, John Chrysostom, Constantine, Cromwell, Calvin, Erasmus, prophets, priests, martyrs, mystics, reformers, saints. Perhaps there was not one of them but would have disclosed some obvious weakness, some glaring fault, sufficient to compromise him. But if so, the evil that was in them was not allowed to upset the providential plan. Each was enabled to play his part, because the main interest seems to have been to get the necessary work done. As to who should do it has been a secondary consideration, the tools have fallen to those who could handle them. Hence, much hay, wood, and stubble have been mixed with useful and indispensable characters. Many have been badly pockmarked, but have been chosen not for the evil, but for the grain or two of essential good that was in them. Some one quality or force they had, necessary to the time, and that must be invoked to save a tottering world. It may have been Leonine courage, tenacity of purpose, a faculty for rapid organization, it may have been executive ability, it may have been the power of expression and vigorous speech and trenchant invective, the gift to arouse and incite supine and coward populations, the fire of Demosthenes, it may have been the foresight and finesse of a diplomat, or a power of patient endurance and unwearied industry and indomitable will which the crisis called for. But whatever property or trait it was, upon this the soul of the time seized. God chose this individual, God thundered out of his Zion, saying, Hic est, this is he, this is my Cyrus, my Alexander, my Nebuchadnezzar, my Alaric, my Mahomet, my Luther, my glittering sword to cut the hard knot, to shear away the tangle, to shovel out the congested mass of lies and cobwebs. This is my magical key to open the gates of justice and mercy to mankind. Hence it happens that individuals often seem to stand in the same relation to the progress of society and the betterment of the world that mortar hods, windlass, block and tackle bear to structures of brick and granite. They are good and necessary for the work, for the exigency. They have it in them to do what no one else can do, and so are tolerable, are even applauded, so far as they go. Their sole merit lies in this, that they have some one virtue that is apposite to these circumstances. Men are often God's sword, hammer, trowel, torch, his ox-goad, whiplash, dynamite, to alarm, arouse, punish, shatter, or overturn, as the case may be. Take the individual apart from this function, and there is nothing in him. Set him down at another date and in different conditions, and he will not be heard of, 
will die uncelebrated, unsung. But toss him into a day of tumult, of hissing and astonishment, and he has it in him to speak peace, to command the waters that they subside, and the dry land that it appear. Thus it is that God uses that in men which is fit and apt to fulfill his ends. Four-fifths of the individual may be unsound, unclean, irrelevant, abominable, but the fractional balance is just the thing demanded by the age, by the hour, and so is harnessed and set to work like blind, brawny Samson grinding in the mill. Because the work must somehow be done. The world has a pre-established orbit. God has a path, a destination for it. It is not a green-coated, stagnant pool filled with frogs, but a broad, glancing river seeking the sea. There is a divine idea dominating and directing all things. Whatever great and fine faculty any one has, the master builder will hew and dress it as a cedar from Lebanon, and set it up as a pillar in its place. The rest of him may be rubbish. Men are serviceable and are saved by what is good in them. Consequently, if the problem be to find perfect, flawless men and women, it is a vain quest. Such never have been here. St. Paul told the Lyconians, quote, We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities. Unquote. In that word he struck clear and firm the note of difference. In the ground forms and in his centrality man is one, but some have larger intelligence, loftier aims, deeper convictions, more moral courage, a profounder sense of unworthiness, a livelier sense of divine things, more idealism. It is in regard to these occasional glimpses of higher truths, and the power of subordinating the seen and sensible to the unseen and imperishable, that men chiefly differ. All are full of shortcomings, all have to fight the animal, the demon within, some more, others less. If the moral government of the world had been conducted upon the principle of throwing out this one because he is obstinate and combative, and that one because he is sensitive and irritable, another because he is vain and vaporing, another because he is coarse and common, another because his cradle was rocked in a garret by a poor, pale, distracted mother, another because he is a bastard or a glutton or the like. I say, if all the Ishmaelites and Esau's and Nazarenes and Boeotians were cast out of the world's story, simply because there is something about them that awakens prejudice or inspires contempt, and that does not square with the highest standards of dignity and fitness, in that case there would not have been material enough to do the world's work. Human history would hardly have got past the Ark and the Deluge if divine providence had waited for men and women fit in all senses to wear the mitres and lead the armies and execute the laws and write the literatures of the world. But God is not afraid of weakness, imperfection, and sin. He can overrule it. He can mold it like dough or clay. He can work with depraved, disproportionate materials towards superlative issues. Not only the good, serviceable material, but the obstinate and obstructive is manipulated by a skill that defies defeat. No noble scheme, no beneficent impulse was ever given to the race that did not directly gather around it unworthy creatures, hungry camp followers, time-serving hangers-on, to spoil and disfigure it. The finger marks of human handling are visible on everything, so that, if God were to wait for immaculate men and women to give currency and ascendancy to any one of his ideas and ends, it would suffer an indefinite postponement. But this has not been the divine policy. God chooses the harlot Rahab to open the promised land to the Hebrew people. 
her lying fabrication and deceitful craft are taken up like threads in the fast-flying shuttle of the Almighty, and wrought into his design. He leaves men to act out their natural and spontaneous instincts, and turns these to the best account. The actors pass, the principles abide. Look at any new theory, institution, or order that has promise in it, and you will likely be scandalized by the jealousy, selfishness, spite, low views, private interests of those who are seeking to organize it. The thing seems to be a whetstone, and each has an axe to grind. But look away from the human agents and their infirmities, and consider them as attorneys and trustees. Turn your eye to the practical, ultimate, and final end, the substantial values involved, and there you get the true angle of vision and the right impression, and are encouraged once more. It will not do to study individuals too closely. Few can stand the limelight. Judge no cause entirely by its advocates and disciples. Had even the Christian religion been estimated by reference to those who made up its first following, the worldly wise would have said, quote, This thing will founder in our time, will not outlast the century, unquote. And had we witnessed Rahab and the spies concocting treason in her shanty on the town wall, out of such a low origin and wretched intrigue no man would have predicted the throne of David, or the magnificent age of Solomon. But someone has prettily said that great events march through gates that are set on small hinges. We must study the event, the drift and development of things. Observe also the mode of Rahab's deliverance. She bound the scarlet line in the window. This was the preconcerted signal which Joshua and the Hebrew army agreed to recognize and honor when they entered the land. It was a typical transaction, for the central truth of the gospel lies embedded here. In that dark and brutal age, God intimated in cipher that he would one day conclude arrangements for the reduction of this sinful world to the obedience of Christ. The parallel is impressive. Rahab seems to prophesy. For in this dramatic action is depicted the serious truth that our world is a heathenish, ungodly Jericho that must be ransacked and revolutionized and set on a better basis. It must be searched and cleansed and receive a new constitution. A loftier manhood must come in, a higher and finer social order. And to prefigure this future, God has displayed from the walls of our world Jericho a scarlet line, a flaming banner, and has lifted up a holy cross as a hopeful signal. In this Old Testament story, behold a vivid picture of darkened, depraved man waiting for a deliverer, waiting for a kingdom of purity, righteousness, and love. I can see Rahab examining the casement from day to day to find whether the line would hold or had slipped. Every night she listens if she can catch the multitudinous murmur of the approaching host. How often does she strain her eye in that direction? Through all the hours of the day her continual thought is, They are coming. It may be tonight, perhaps tomorrow, certainly by this day week. It cannot be long ere the Hebrews are here. Then she looks at the scarlet line for the hundredth time to see that all is right and according to stipulation. Now these things are an allegory. Yonder shanty on the wall and its red rag fluttering in the breeze is an Old Testament sign of a New Testament truth. It means a beleaguered world that must some day capitulate to a righteous king. It means a Canaan of idolatry ignorance and sin, flying a flag of distress and waiting for a redemption, for a better covenant, a new era, a kingdom of light and of holiness. And the personal question for each one is this, do I know that I belong to an evil generation, to a sinful race, and do I long for a liberator 
a savior, or am I content with my native Canaan, its sins and shams and shames, and all its disorder? Quote, the Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? Unquote. End of chapter 2